Good morning, Central Bible. I want to welcome everyone here. I know there's literally some neighbors who are here, friends of mine. I know there's some friends from Cannon Beach, too. I know there's people all across the board who are visiting, and just want to welcome you. We believe it's central to the gospel to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. Very open door in the kingdom of God, but as we enter, God begins to transform us and change us. So just want to welcome all you. I, uh, I literally just got a text 10 minutes ago, and uh, I only opened it because it was from Ben Tertine, uh, the pastor here, and uh, wonderful brother, wonderful friend, and he, uh, he, he, believe it or not, is not in Portland right now. He is in Israel. And ironically, this was not planned. This was not like we developed this scheme. But right now, he just crossed the Sea of Galilee, and he was just in the place that we're going to be preaching from this morning. We didn't, that was not planned, but he literally was where the demoniac was dealt with in Mark 5. So small world, but right now, Ben is at where Jesus did this miracle, even as we speak. There's this picture he just sent of him on the Sea of Galilee, saying he just was at where we're preaching from. So pretty fun stuff. He's, uh, doing, uh, he's there uh, kind of learning from a top-notch New Testament scholar for 10 days, and uh, He's part of his uh, doctoral studies. And yesterday he was at the place where Elijah faced the uh, prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And uh, uh, so he's been kind of seeing the sights and, and enjoying learning. If you guys would pray for Pastor Ben, that it would be a fruitful and refreshing time for him. Does that sound good? Pretty amazing. I was like, when I saw that text, I was like, that is exciting. If I could, if I was quick, I would have a way to like take it from my phone and show you a picture. But just trust me, that, that, really, that really happened. My wife has it right there. See, take a look. She's a witness. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, it, it has been established. Thank you. Uh, before we uh, jump into Mark 5 this morning, I wanted to update you on an ongoing discussion about missions and uh, local missions funds that the elder team has been having and that uh, we have also been having with many of you at, at Central Bible over the last year. If you remember uh, this last April, the elder team decided to to aim at beginning to use about half of our missions funds for local missions. Uh, we believe that, uh, that it was a wise to dedicate half of that towards evangelistic missions to men and women who are here in Portland who would not be able to enter this church for language barrier reasons, uh, specific groups of people or subcultures who our main service uh, currently couldn't minister to and is not yet equipped to do that. So. We shared with you all, if you remember this, uh, uh, this past May at a family meeting, had a discussion, heard a lot of your hearts, your concerns, got some input, and uh, we spent the last nine months praying and considering who we could support as a local missionary. And we've also hoped that whoever that person might be, that it, it could be someone who could also begin by helping us to support the work of missions here at Central Bible. And... Uh, and to not just do work in East Portland and, and reaching people um, who need Christ, but willing to help and able to refocus and encourage the work of missions here at Central Bible Church, both locally and overseas. And uh, we believe that we have found someone who is able to serve as a kind of missionary in residence, if you can let me use that term. Um, let me briefly describe this person to you, and then I'll let you know who it is. If you've ever been to the Active Word Breakfast, you know I love doing this describing the person and all of you are trying to guess who it is and then telling you. So as we do that, I want, to, I want you to consider uh, this person's life as an example of what we'll be looking at in Mark 5, the kind of uh, transformation that God can give to a life and the impact that life can have for the kingdom of God. 
So the man I'd like to describe to you uh, this morning grew up on the big island of Hawaii, on the rainy side, very, not tire like Portland, but it is rainy. And so he'd had that advantage to get used to perpetual downpours. Um, there's also a volcano. Ours is dead. His was alive and flowing regularly, dividing the town at times. Uh, he uh, was surrounded by a very pagan and uh, darker place, but he was radically uh, and surprisingly saved by Jesus in high school. He grew in his faith uh, during that time, in, in, uh, and he grew and he loved deeply Jesus, and then he came to Portland for a bit in the early 2000s uh, to study at Multnomah, then uh, Bible College, and uh, majored in biblical languages, which if any of you have studied biblical languages, you know how incredibly, I almost said freaking hard it is, but it is hard. He's a, he's a bit of a scholar himself, loves the languages, but he then returned not to do scholastics, but he returned to his hometown in Puna, uh, Puna, Hawaii, to plant a church. And uh, he began that, and it's called Grassroots Church, began that in 2006 in his living room, and it grew, and it became a very healthy church. And then he was actually sent out after raising up a team of elders and pastors right there in Pune. He was sent out by them in 2010 to do uh, uh, disciple-making missions, work among refugees, and he's focused make, doing much of that effort here in East Portland um, during the last, you know, uh, how many years would that be now? Six years, six, seven years. So he's uh, right now in a transition between organizations, and uh, we're excited to help substantially support the work that he's been doing and uh, to see how he could help us as a missionary residence at Central Bible Church. Many of you may already know who I'm talking about and who I've been describing. Um, He taught a class this last fall uh, called The Changing World of uh, Global Missions, and the idea of local missions could be done in a way that encourages the work of global missions, and global missions could be done very locally with how mobile so many people are. And uh, some of us got to participate in that and learn from that, and how that looks in our very own city of Portland, Oregon. And I would like to just ask if Oshawa Hawthorne would stand up for a moment. Can you help me to welcome Mr. Oshawa Hawthorne? I was going to have him stand the whole time, but uh, we'll... It was just that brief up and down. Right now, just to let you know, they're transitioning uh, over the next few months into this role of kind of missionary in residence. Uh, but we're excited to let you know that March 5th, he'll be preaching, uh, sharing from the Word from the Gospel of Mark. And uh, it just so happens it'll be about the sending out of the Twelve, which I, has something to do with missions. So he's, he's excited about preparing for that. And uh, he's going to continue to do his work among refugees and a whole variety of nationalities here in Portland. Um, but he's also uh, excited about helping us to just re-envision what local missions could look like, as well as figuring out what does it look like for us to continue to do global missions in a way that's really fruitful. Um, so as he exits one ministry scenario and he begins to walk with us, we again are very excited about this period of kind of revitalizing what local and global missions looks like. Um, if you get a chance this morning, if you would uh, just meet Oshawa and uh, just say hi to him. Um, he's, uh, as he's doing that, just to let you know, his wife has been at home for a little while with their kids because they have chicken pox. So, kind of sad, but Oshawa, are you still without chicken pox? It's been a couple of decades, so he should be fine. Feel free to say hi to him at some point this morning. Again, I just want to say, Oshawa, thank you so much on behalf of the elder team, on the pastoral team, on behalf of the whole church. We're excited about uh, 
your work uh, with us and as well as among refugees and equipping us to do that kind of work together. So welcome, Oshawa. Did I hear a woo? There should be a lot more woo-woo than that. Let's hear it. So if you got your Bible, turn to Mark 5. Interesting passage that, uh, that brings up questions of all kinds. Questions about demons, questions about pigs, questions about Jesus, questions about why these kinds of things happen the way that they did. I'd like to look at this passage, not so much uh, to give us information about those things out there in some distant past, even though you could go to that same location. Again, Pastor Ben is there this moment. But I'd like to really dig into what we see here in this passage so we can learn that within each one of us, there really is no neutral ground. A lot of us want to have areas that don't relate with God or the powers of darkness, but that there really is no neutral ground. If you look on the front of your bolt, and I put a little quote there by C.S. Lewis, it says that there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. And as we consider this reality, not merely out there in the world around us, but, but this reality played out on every square inch of our lives, every split second that slips between our fingertips, I hope that you can look at a few things with me and consider as we dig in this passage these three things. We're going to be looking at, at unmanageable evil. You'll see how unmanageable it is as we look into this. We're going to look at unmatchable power presented that we see in Jesus Christ, and then we're going to look at when the two meet. So again, unmanageable evil, unmatchable power, and when the two meet. So if you would, we're going to read Mark 5, the first 20 verses, a longer section here, but it's one, one story. So let's hear God's word. It's Mark 5, verse 1. It says, They came to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me? Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. As you can tell, I've struggled with my demonic voice. I was really tempted to go, let us enter him. But I, my voice is, my accents usually change as I read, so I'm just going to try to read it normally, okay? I'm going to try it here. And so he gave them permission. Incredible. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, 
rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. And the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by, with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to them, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away, and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Would you pray with me? Lord, we praise you for your word. Thank you for the truth that is in Jesus. We ask you in your name that you would help us to see clearly. Lord, help us to see the complexity of the situation. Help us to see the richness of it. Lord, more than anything else, we ask you, Father, help us to see Jesus this morning. Help us to see him. And help us, Lord, as we look at Christ to be changed by him. Help us as we look into the mirror of your word, even the person of Christ. Help us, O oh Lord, to be changed ourselves and to see ourselves clearly. Lord, we need you. There are many of us who are trying to manage evil and sin and struggles in our own life without you, and we ask you to help us to come desperately to you. We love you, we trust you, and pray in Jesus' name, amen. One of the, uh, the greatest difficulties of this kind of a passage is uh, that we feel really far away, many of us, from the demoniac in the story. Um, most of us are not living in tombs. Most of us aren't gouging ourselves with rocks. Most of us are, are fairly unfamiliar with this kind of extreme, chaotic confusion that was clearly lived out day after day, night after night in this man's life. And so it's easy to start by saying, that was somebody else. I have no idea what that kind of experience is like. And in many ways, if, you, if, you, if you're familiar with genres of, mu- of movies, this clearly is in the, the kind of horror category. <laughs> there is ever a passage of Scripture that be, could be easily made into a horror movie, this is it. Demons, I mean, a whole army of demons inhabiting a human being. It's like Silence of the Lamb, but worse. The whole legion. There's animals that are possessed. There's a herd of swine that go mad. There's chains. There's ropes. There's human attempts to to deal with this crazy person. There's tombstones, graveyards, and a power that, that when we look at it, we say, how could... Is this real? Did this really happen? Our modern minds tend to, to go there. And there is, a, there is a, a surface level kind of strange story here, but I would like you to, if you're, if you're willing with me, to just, to just go a little bit deeper and to say, what, what significance does this have for you and I? And I think that this man is an incredible example. I think this really happened, but I think he serves as an incredible example of how unmanageable evil is. First off, this man had been, others had tried but couldn't manage or control this man. Others had tried. Again, you, you, when you read the, if this didn't just happen overnight, look at the, what it says in verses 2 through 5. It says, this man comes, very unclean spirit. It says, he lived among the tombs. 
and no one could bind him anymore. At one point, there was a time, apparently, where others could bind him. But something happened. This demonic possession got increasingly worse. It says that people couldn't do that anymore, and that not even with a chain could it work. And it says in verse 4, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains. This is something that for years, it seems, people have been trying to manage and deal with this person with the resources that they had, and they, they couldn't do it. They couldn't pull off helping this man. And, and clearly, there was this developed attempt to subdue this person. It says he wrenched the chains apart. He broke them in two. And it says that no one had the strength to subdue him. But they attempted everything they knew how. It's interesting that spiritually this man is in bondage, incredibly deep bondage, and yet physically he, he couldn't be bound. No one could subdue him, but these devils had him entirely subdued. Another translation, I love it, it says that no one was strong enough to tame him. He'd become more like an animal than a man. But there was a point, I, I, doubtless, when this man realized that he couldn't even manage himself, that he was out of control himself. You look at the... Uh, the fifth chapter, how bad, it, or the fifth verse, how, how bad it got. It says that day and night among the tombs, on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. It's easy to think of just that the demons are doing this to him, but the man was so tormented, there was a, his own soul was also involved, and he was, he was tearing himself apart day in, day out, but it hadn't always been that way. When Jesus tells the man to go back to his home, if you notice, it says that he tells him to go back home to his friends. This man, at one point, at some point in the distant past, actually had a house. And clearly there was somebody there who would be willing to receive him. He said, go back to your house. Go back to your house. We don't know who was waiting there for him, whether it was his own father or his wife or children. But there was an actual house that this man could say was his. But something had changed. Evil that at one point was maybe manageable now was no longer manageable. There were people that he could go back to and would claim that they were his friends, even though they hadn't seen him for so long, unless he was out wandering the tombs late at night, hurting himself, harming others, living with pigs. So this man, had, he had lost control of himself. And, and it's easy just to say, well, that's just a crazy man. But the fact is, this is a man who had gone crazy. He hadn't always been like this. In fact, you and I know what this is like. You may have an uncle or a friend who at one point were in their right mind, but right now you would say they've changed so radically that it's like you're not talking to them any longer. And it's hard to know what categories to give to that. I don't know, even know if it's always helpful for us to perfectly discern through what's going on with them. But this, this demon possession thing is such a a mystery that's hard to categorize exactly how it happened. There's a lot of questions for our modern mind, but what we can say, what's unambiguous, is that there were literally thousands of demons hanging out in this man, and Jesus was more powerful than them. But, but what caused this? How does this kind of a crazy scenario begin in a person's life? And we don't know exactly. It could have, been, it could have simply been bitterness. The man could have been bitter towards a father towards somebody who had betrayed them. And that bitterness began to grow until they 
became bitterness, as it were. It could have been witchcraft. It could have been a lot of things. The, the Word of God warns us against all sorts of like spinning and making your own spirituality and how dangerous that can get. And yet what's, what's incredible here is that we don't know how this man got to this place. What is clear is that, that evil is not manageable. And it, and it has an effect. It has a growing. It has a, an increased level in each of our lives when we leave room for it and we don't deal with it head on. When we don't, when we don't realize the, our inability to deal with evil, sometimes we just say, I'll just have a little bit more, a little more, and it won't be that big of a deal. God's Word is really sensitive to this. And even with Christians, think about this. In, in Ephesians 5, or Ephesians 4, you can look it up there, a longer passage, but uh, 20, verse 26 through 27, it gives a warning against anger. It says, yeah, you can be angry, but, but don't sin in that anger. And he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Interesting. Really quick, he just mentions that simply anger and frustration with another human being, it could even be right frustration and anger, that, that when that settles down into your soul, it literally it says that it gives an opportunity for the devil in your life. Now, we don't know if it started that way, but even as Christians, this is one of the things we have to face, is that this what this demoniac was experiencing in the extreme, we can experience in part. Even if you have the Holy Spirit of God, if you look in the surrounding passage, it, gives the, it talks about being filled with the Spirit. These Christians shouldn't lie but speak the truth. That they, shouldn't, they shouldn't be bitter. Read the surrounding passage in Ephesians. There's, there's a lot of things. He says there shouldn't be malice. He says you should put those things off. But if you leave room for them, they'll increase. And they'll give an opportunity for the devil himself in your life. Giving room for evil in our own lives is, is unmanageable. Maybe you know what this is like. You probably know what this is like in close relationships. Uh, if you're married or you have a close roommate, put yourself in this scenario. Your roommate or wife or husband, depending on who you are, every day for the first week of your relationship with this person, they leave their socks right there in the middle of the room. And you remind them kindly for the first week. You remind them kindly for the first month. You remind them for the first three months of living together. And little by little, you just stop reminding them. But you don't stop reminding them because you're willing to deal with the filthy socks always left around. No, no, no. You, you stop reminding them because you are so angry at them. In fact, you, little by little... Instead of just letting the socks sit there, you start doing nasty things to the socks. You know, I mean, you've maybe been in this scenario. You, uh, you take out some ketchup from the fridge. You put it inside the sock and just let it sit there. They'll, they got to deal with their own problems. You go worse and you put some tuna inside the sock and just wait. They'll notice it at some point. And little by little, after those kind of pranks wear off, you pick up the socks and you start throwing them at the person, getting really angry. And after a while, your anger starts affecting everything you see. Now you don't just see the socks. You see how much this person talks and doesn't listen. Not only do they talk and not listen, they're never really interested in you. They don't even serve you. In fact, you don't even know why you're here with this person. This person is so self-centered that I don't know why I, just, why I put up with you. Now, all of a sudden, 
this little sock and the bitterness that this sock has allowed has created inside of you incredible bitterness. So much so that now you, that one little sock that seems so manageable is starting to take over your thought life day and night. You wake up at night more often and you're angry. The first thing you think in the morning is what kind of a person this is that you somehow ended up in the same room with. Now, you, you know, if you're familiar with your heart or soul, if you start giving room to this, it grows. It increases. It's like, the Bible says, it's like leaven, and it increases, and it affects the whole lump. And you and I, we have to deal with this. It's not just in relationship with other people. It might be a secret sin, a secret lust, a covered-up addiction that you kind of keep quiet, and you don't want a single soul to know about. When life itself gets more and more out of control, when Jesus steps into that scenario, we feel threatened because Jesus is in control. He might want to deal with those areas that are crazy. Some of us, our life is like, and it's like playing spiritual whack-a-mole. You ever played whack-a-mole? Where you're trying to deal with sin in your own heart, and you hit one mole down, and then another one pops up immediately. You hit that mole down, another one hops up, and hit another one, another one. And it's just like, it's like the sin in your heart and your life is unmanageable. You've tried to deal with it, but the moment you deal with one scenario, another thing pops up, and you, you knock one down, and another comes up, and it seems like evil just doesn't go away. It just gets relocated. You know if you're, if, how often your spiritual life can even feel that way, where it's just an unmanageable trying to handle sin, feeling more and more overwhelmed. See, the scary thing is that when we, when we give room for evil, and we don't bring it directly to the light. We, we really, we cannot manage it. It always grows, and it grows really quietly until we realize just how unmanageable it is. And what's incredible about this man in this passage, this demoniac, is the distinction between his own sin, Satan, and our own soul can grow blurry. It, you, see it, you see it embodied in him. We're not certain what's him speaking and what's the demon speaking. If you read the passage again, you're like, is this the demon or is this the man? Who's speaking here? The confusion is present. Look at what he does. He does two things, very contradictory. One, he presents himself, he runs towards Jesus, and he falls face first. Good move. I think that's a good move. I would say, if I was to give that a thumbs up or thumbs down, thumbs up. Next thing he says to Jesus, he says, what do I have to do with you? What do you have to do with me? You have no business with me. Why are you even here? That's the kind of question he asks of Jesus. You see his tossness. He comes and falls before Jesus. On the other hand, he says, could you just leave us alone? Get out of here. We don't want you around here. Our time has not yet come. And there's this confusion of soul that's going on in this man. It's hard. It's very hard to determine, is this the man or is this the demon? And this is one of the things that as Christians, we've got to watch a certain cliche that we use. We have a cliche that says, love the sinner and hate the sin, right? It's, a good, it's good fundamentally. But, but when it comes to human beings, real human beings, oftentimes when sinners love the sin so much that when you are hating their sin, it feels like you're hating them. And it's hard to distinguish between them both. Maybe you experience this in your own life, not just those sinners over there, but the sinners, hey, right here, us sitting here today. Maybe you have a, a sin that is so regular that, 
that in some ways you don't realize how much you've become like it. It could be just anger. Again, you, you have this sin, this struggle with anger, and then people say about you not just that you at times are angry, but that you are an angry person. Not only are you somebody who lies, but you become a, a liar. It becomes who you are, and you, uh, you might be able to say, well, that's not me, this is, this is just what I do, but the, the line for other people as they look into your life, it's not, that, it's not that easy to draw that line. And I don't even know if with Jesus, I, I think that only Jesus, really supremely, is the great physician, can draw the line as narrowly as it needs to be drawn, and we try to help each other, and at times we, we hurt each other. Because the reality is, as C.S. Lewis said, I'm going to go back to that quote, he said that there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. Evil is unmanageable. Sin is unmanageable. Satan is unmanageable. We can't handle it on our own. What I love is that it all changes. It says that no one could subdue him, and then you get this unmatchable power that shows up. It could pair what people had experienced and what happens when Jesus shows up. He says, again, no one had strength to subdue him, and then Jesus shows up in the sixth verse and says, and when he saw Jesus from afar, we don't know how far off he was. Could have been a quarter of a mile as he looked down the Sea of Galilee. He saw Jesus from afar, he ran, and he fell down before him. This was not, there was not a match. This was not like a, a, a close competition between Jesus versus the devil. Sometimes we, we like to think there's some kind of an equal struggle between light and darkness. And that's a, that's a popular way to think about what goes on between Satan and God. But that's not, in the Bible, there's not a yin-yang approach to, to, to God and Satan. Like Satan's the, the bad one and God's the good one, and they kind of balance each other out. That's, that's not actually the way the Bible presents this. There's not some kind of an equal battle going on, like two armies equally met, or like two, two sports teams who have the exact same number of players, or two football teams, and if one just has a better play, then we'll be able to make the touchdown and win, maybe, maybe. That's not, that's not the kind of, kind of battle that's going on here. It's easy to think of it that way, um, but that's not the, not the case. Now, because it's Super Bowl Sunday, i got to mention something, okay, about teams and sports. Some of you know that two weeks ago, uh, Pastor Ben was really excited about the Packers potentially being in the Super Bowl, but the Falcons killed them. <laughs> Did you guys know that? Okay, so I have this theory. Now, I know that Ben didn't offer a prayer on Sunday morning two weeks ago, okay, to say, God, would you please let the Packers win? But he always predicts that they will win. And I think that secretly there's these prayers going on, Okay. This is, a, this is totally spiritual speculation, okay? This is, has no, nothing grounded in the passage, but this is a theological speculation, okay? I think that all, all prayers, all specific prayers for sports teams, okay? This is a warning for if there's any, if there's any big Falcon fans or, or you know, any New, Eng, New England Patriot fans out there. I just would like you to know that I think what God does with all those prayers and hopes is he puts them in a big recycling bin, Okay? And in that big recycling bin, he occasionally will take out the recycling bin of prayers for teams, and he'll, like, he'll mash it all up, and he'll change all of it, and then he'll form it into something different. And he'll use your prayer, and he'll, it'll be functional at some level, but it won't be an answer to your prayers, okay? So that's my theory about praying for sports teams. 
But what is going on here in this passage is that there is not, this is not an equal match. This is not a one against one. It says clearly that, that these, this demon came and it says he begged Jesus earnestly. That doesn't sound like an e- Could you imagine if at the, at, before they flipped the coin today at the beginning of the Super Bowl, if, if a whole team, a whole legion came and the patriots came and they bowed down everybody face forward before the other team and said, we just give up. We just give up. We just, we just want to beg you, can you just let us leave the stadium without dying? Can you just let us leave the stadium? Please, just let us leave. Just let us take, maybe the, we'll take, the, we'll take that, that, that one over there. We'll take those five people with us. That's all we want. That'd be crazy, absolutely crazy. But here, because this, this is the odds are never in the, the devil's favor. Jesus is totally in control. Jesus doesn't work with statistics. He is the plan. And Jesus is clearly the unmatchable power. It's not a one-for-one, this team versus this team. Jesus shows them his power as he shows up. He shows that he can enter an unclean situation, and he can make it clean. He can take a man who's absolutely crazy in his own head, and he can bring him to a, a right frame of mind. Jesus alone has the power to subdue this broken world, and we can be comforted by that. And what I love in this passage is what the disciples do. Do you see what the disciples do here? Take a look at this passage. The disciples do nothing. <laughs> They're present. They clearly were with them in the boat when they got off and when they got on, but the disciples do absolutely nothing. They have no significant role besides just watching what Jesus does. And Jesus Christ shows up in his power, and they play the background. I think when it comes to the most significant battles with the powers of darkness, that that's, that's often our role. We just have to be with Jesus. Just watch what he does. They play the background. And what I love in this passage is everyone seems really small except for Jesus Christ. He's this, he's this unmatchable power that everything just looks so small, so weak in front of him. Some of you may remember uh, Corey Timboom, uh, the, the woman who was thrown into Nazi concentration camps. She was a, a Dutch watchmaker. She became a Christian. She was a Christian, loved Jesus from very early on, but then when uh, Jews were being taken to concentration camps, she and her father and a number of other family members helped many Jews get es- escape from Germany and to go to safety. That's what she did. She was then thrown into prison. And she saw unimaginable and unmanageable evil. She saw things that you couldn't imagine. This is, when, when she thought about God's work and Satan's work, this is what she said about it. She said that there are two great forces at work in the world today. The unlimited power of God and the limited power of Satan. The unlimited power of God and the limited power of Satan. Now, I want to I go somewhere theologically with you that might be deep waters. And so if you're willing to go there, hold your breath. But, but start breathing soon too, okay? I don't want anybody passing out. Uh, but just try to go somewhere with me if you're willing to. I want to consider with you when these two meet, when, when unimaginable evil, unmanageable evil, and, and this unmatchable power meet, when they collide, I want to consider with you what happens and what is going on. Why does Jesus do this? In this passage, and I think there's, I think there's some things in this passage that can that can help us. You may have heard 
And maybe you are asking. I don't, I don't know. Some of us here aren't, um, aren't Christians, and some of us, even as Christians, we have, we have doubts. We can be more skeptical and wonder, why did this happen? I don't understand. What's the deal with Jesus here? He's confusing to me. There, there can be doubts and things like that. So I want to ask you this question. How, and this is something that a, a, a non-Christian once asked me. He said, how could, how could a Christian justify Jesus Christ, who supposedly destroyed this large herd of pigs that didn't even belong to him? Why would Jesus even do that? It's a good question. Why does he do that? First off, I want you to feel a little bit more deeply about what's going on here, okay? We, we think of the pigs drowning, we're like, that's crazy and weird, but we don't feel the, the weight of it for, for these people. Jesus was involved in allowing, and it says he, do, he did it, the demons did it, but he allowed these 2,000 pigs to get into the hands of these demons. It was devastating for the region. Now, for us, try to do the math with me, okay? You have 2,000 pigs. If they were really inexpensive, low-class, not very useful pigs, they would be about, you may say, $250 a piece, okay? That's $500,000 worth of pigs. Now, take today. Imagine a pig in Portland. In pdxfoodpress.com, this is their estimation of the value of a pig. Now, I had to look this up because I, I don't know how valuable a pig is. I'm like, how much were these pigs? You could get a half a pig for anywhere from $600 to $700. $600 to $700, okay? That means that every pig, imagine if it was, if it was ready to be, to be killed and eaten, would be $1,200 to $1,400. That would mean that these, these pigs were worth anywhere from $2 million to $2.5, maybe $3 million. Now, that's a lot of money. Now, I feel sensitive to that, not just because of the money, but because I love bacon, okay? I want to I share with you a shirt. This, is, this, is, this was a gift for my mother-in-law, okay? This right here. And I wear it sometimes when I work out. It just says, this guy loves bacon. Now, some of us are, are, don't eat in any meat at all, but I want you to know I love bacon. I will... I will always, if I get to choose between all the meats in the world, I will choose bacon. So when I'm reading about these thousands of wasted pigs, I feel for the people. I mean, that's a lot of good barbecue. It's a lot of good barbecue. Now, imagine if you were the person who had spent maybe a generation, maybe two or three generations, we don't know, in raising and maintaining and keeping this herd of pigs. And they were raised, doubtless, for the for the Romans in that region, this, this, this region of 10 cities, they were caring for these pigs. They were selling them. They were making, they were making money. And, and then every, after years of investing in their business, everything's taken away by this itinerant Jew who shows up and destroys the herd. What is going on here? Why would Jesus allow for this kind of a thing to happen? Why did he permit it? It says that he permitted the demons to go in to these pigs. They literally, if this was your business, you literally could not bring home the bacon. It's not a figure of speech there. That's literally what's going on. Who's going to bring home the bacon is what I think all the herdsmen were asking. Big problem, right? Well, what I want you to see right now, and this is going from the surface to getting a little deeper here, okay? You might have thought that was the depths. That was not the depths, okay? I would like you to consider the motives of the people present, or the motives, say, of, of the demons, 
and the motives of Jesus. Why would he do this? Why would he allow this? I think there's two motives, and one of the motives was to tempt and destroy. The other motive was to try and to create something new. So you've got a difference here. You have something, someone who wants to tempt and someone who wants to test and try. Two very different motives. Now, consider this with me. These demons, their ambition is that, doubtless, that no one could hear or know the truth about what's in Christ. That was their ambition. When they see Jesus show up, these demons don't all of a sudden say, you know what, Jesus, you're awesome. We're going to listen to what you have to say. Whatever, we won't deceive or trick anybody. I think actually there's incredible deceptiveness in what they request. And they think they're being clever. And, they, and they, when, they, when they look at the opportunity in front of them, they think this. And I, I believe this is what's going on here. They think if we were to destroy this herd of pigs, the entire region would be closed to Jesus. They wouldn't want to hear. If we took away millions of dollars worth of investment, the moment Jesus shows up, no matter who gets better, the people will not want him around. I think that they, they desired to tempt the people. And so, in destroying all their swine, the people were tempted to look at the value of the swine as better than the value of Jesus. Or the value of the swine as better than one man sitting clothed and in his right mind. They, it tempted them in many ways to value pigs over people, to value money over the Messiah. I think that's the temptation that the devil wanted to lodge in people's hearts. And, and I think that even these demons thought they were clever. It's not that they needed to exist inside a pig to keep surviving. They drove these pigs to die. They wanted to destroy the region as much as possible before they left the region. So you see this, you see this motivation that's deep that say, I want to tempt people. I want to destroy as much as possible. And that's, that's what the devil's like. But on the other hand... You have God who wants to try and test people, who wants to recreate people. Very interesting book by a man named Russell Moore called Tested and Tried. It's a study of the temptations of Jesus Christ. And, and it's, excuse me, t- tempted and tried. And the idea is that he zeroes in on is that, that Satan has one motivation for tempting, but God has a totally different motivation. And you could actually have, you could have the same action the same exact event in which God and the devil himself is involved in. The same exact event. And one can be perfectly good, have perfectly good motives, and the other can have perfectly evil motives. We can, see that, we can see that in the story of Job, and I think you see it here in Mark 5. You see it here in Mark 5. Because you see some people saying, Get out of here, Jesus. We don't want you around here. And they respond to the loss of all these finances in some ways the way I think that these devils hoped that they would. But Jesus does something very subversive. He just saves one person. He saves one person who is radically bound in darkness. And it overturns this entire region. The devils thought that they had won, but, but not so. I want you to see the two responses that Jesus gets here in this passage. You get two different responses. Both are begging responses. One are some people who beg Jesus to leave, right? You see it in verse 14 through 17. Read it with me one more time. It says, The herdsmen fled, and they told it in the city, in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. 
And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. I think that was the entire motivation of these devils, was to get the people's mind frame in a way where they would beg Jesus to leave. They would say, okay, this man is healthy, but we're not used to this. The problem is we don't care how many people you make healthy, Jesus. We care about how much money we have coming in. That's the most important thing to us. It was a very reasonable kind of slavery. It was a slavery to money. Their life was in total control until Jesus comes in and he makes everything, it seems to them, out of control. And I think what Jesus wanted them to ask was questions like this. Do I, and maybe he wants us to ask the same questions, do I love my fellow man more because he's created in God's image or do I love pigs more? Literally, because they bring home the bacon. Where is my allegiance? Where is my love? God will test our priorities in this world. He has not created utopia. And he will not, he's not yet brought his kingdom in all its glory. He wants actually right now for us to be tested in our own priorities. If every person here had a billion dollars, a fridge that was packed, if every one of us here had perfect health, we would never have an opportunity to show true love and generosity. We would never have an opportunity to show generosity. We would never have an opportunity to show compassion like Christ would call us to show. Yet God created a world. He created a world where you would need to learn sometimes that people are more valuable than your own money. They received this man. They were amazed at what Jesus had done for him. But this much health, they just couldn't deal with. Maybe you've experienced this in your own family. When one person in your family unit gets radically changed, they go from a very kind of peaceful, everyone's dysfunctional kind of setting. And then one person gets fairly healthy, and everything gets out of whack. Maybe you've experienced that in your own family. Maybe, maybe in, you've seen it in someone else's family. But that's what goes on. They see one man get incredibly restored, and everyone says, we can't handle any more of this. Too much healthiness around here. We'd rather pigs than people. You have another person who, who responds to Jesus, and he begs for Jesus to stay with him, right? Look at the man, 18 to verse 20. Love how desperate this man is. And I'm still marvel at Jesus' response. It says that he was, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him. Same thing. He begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home, dear friends, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away, and he began to proclaim the Decapolis, the ten cities in that region, how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Incredible. Uh, think about what goes on here. You have, these, you have all these people begging for certain things from Jesus. You have these demons who say, they beg Jesus, say, Jesus, please let us into those pigs, and Jesus permits it. You have here these people begging for Jesus to leave that region, and Jesus leaves. You have this man who's a recent convert, and he begs, can I just be with you, Jesus? And Jesus says, no. Jesus says, no. More than that, he says, go. I don't want you to follow so closely behind me that you can't go into the world. 
and tell everybody about what I've done for you. This is incredible. You'd think that the right move of Jesus would be to say, yeah, come with us. We'll go back across the lake. We'll, you're, it looks like you're willing to be a convert. Come join us. But Jesus actually says, go and tell everybody. Go into this world. This guy who goes from many masters to one master, from, from being a man who has absolutely no control to being controlled by Jesus, and Jesus Christ says to him, what I want you to do is I want you to go around back to your house, to the relationships you have, and tell them about what I've done for you. Those of you who've recently been touched by Jesus Christ and his mercy, I would encourage you to consider if Jesus wants you to go back to your own home, to go back to your own friends, and to tell them about what Jesus has done for you. To not wait until you're perfect, but right now, to go home and tell people, write a letter, write an email, make that call. See, everyone expects, except for the one who seems like he should have gotten what he wanted, gets it. The truth is that this man got Jesus' heart, the unmatchable power that was willing to give his life away for others. And this man begins to follow Jesus. So I want to end by asking you this simple question. What are you begging Jesus for? What do you really want from Jesus? There is no neutral ground in this entire universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord, we need you. Help us, Lord, your people. Lord, as we sing this next song, as we anticipate how great and strong your name is, help us to see that, Lord, when you went to the cross, you became weak for us. You who were this unstoppable, unmatchable power, you were made weak that we might be strong. God, thank you that you didn't abolish the fact of evil, that you transformed it, that you didn't stop the crucifixion, but you rose from the dead. And I pray in your name that you'd help us to be a people who put our hope entirely in Jesus Christ. We love you. We trust you. And pray in your name. Amen.